love telling people a little story i'll definitely say but it's also like i think i did i, I counted how many times i cried while listening and yeah. i believe it was five this time <laughs> so <laughs> which episode did you cry at um i believe it was oh my god it, it starts on the first one that's what's fucked <laughs> anyways um Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Cult Crypt, uh, the final burial place of high art. I always have to say, ah, uh, that always takes me a second. Um, for me today, I do have a returning guest um, because, in a way, we're talking about music again. It's pretty it's much yeah. multi multifaceted, but very much the music. Um, but yeah, so I have a friend who talked about music with me before. Would you like to introduce yourself again? Um, hi, I'm Jake Kevel. I'm here to talk about music again. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I did know that you really liked Elephant Six. Like, I yeah. feel like we had a good talk about, if it wasn't Intramoke, about Julian, because I brought up Julian Coster. Mm. Um, but it, I wasn't sure about this for a second, so I feel <laughs> a little bit relieved talking pre-episode. No, <laughs> I love the Elephant Six Collective, and I love Julian a lot. I think yeah. it's, um uh, obviously, it's part of my brand that people can look at me and just tell that Neutral Milk Hotel is very important to me. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I was obviously enamored with Neutral Milk, and there's really nowhere to go after Neutral Milk except for the Elephant Six Collective. Very true. And so yeah. I just kind of got enamored with Julian since he's kind of the biggest... Thing, other thing that came out of that besides neutral milk yeah and um just to kind of go over what we're talking about uh i'm going to mainly be referring it to it as the orbiting human circus of mm. the air or the orbiting human circus um that is just straight up what julian coster refers to as like his art plus all of the other people he collaborates with yeah um so it's it is mainly julian coster but it's like everything surrounding like stuff that he's yeah, exactly. Uh, it's interesting how those guys always kind of just form inevitably into a collective again. Yeah. Like the Elephant Six, <laughs> like Neutral Milk Hotel is a very famous band, but very mm -hmm. much came out of the Elephant Six Collective. Yeah. Which was, um, I don't know if I need to introduce the Elephant Six Collective. I mean, we might as well. <laughs> yeah, the Elephant Six Collective was an avant folk gathering of musicians <laughs> and artists and poets mm -hmm. and eventually gave way to Neutral Milk Hotel and a bunch of different art projects. Julian Costner was obviously a part of Neutral Milk hotel mm -hmm. and especially once you get to listening to the orbiting human circus and the music tapes i think mm -hmm. you really get to understand that he was a i think pretty much the most fundamental part of the sound of the elephant six collective i really um, agree <laughs> obviously if you're listening to neutral milk hotel i think pr like the most distinctive parts of it are um jeff's voice and then uh, and then just the cacophony of noise around it. And mm -hmm. Julian, I think, is responsible for that cacophony. I oh, think, yeah. <laughs> I mean, obviously, he's got, he kind of innovated the singing saw. <laughs> yeah. God, I love the singing saw. Um, but no, it's it's just such a very distinct sound that once you, like, mm. move on. I say, I say move on, but once you get the, like, suggestion <laughs> to listen to Julian Coster, you're like, oh, wait, this is, like, what I'm missing from, like, hearing really loud fuzzed out guitar exactly. where everybody else that's allegedly like close to it yeah. um and then also this the lyrics it's all very surreal hmm. um and i i really love saying the word hypnagogic i said it a ton in a little essay i wrote about julian coster <laughs> my freshman year hmm. um generally what i think about whenever i listen to it is nostalgia and this like overwhelming production that kind of puts you in a space where you kind of want to scream along to something yes um which is incredible for me because i love doing that uh i don't think there's a single song <laughs> on the ep or in a lot of the the um albums he's made that you can't scream along to or you can't just like let envelop just you let in some way into it, yeah. exactly um but it's also like it's not ever angry it's always like 
nostalgic or lonely mm. or um, yearning. Lots of yearning. A lot of yearning. A lot of yearning. <laughs> um. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think the exact same thing. I get a lot of nostalgia from anything in the Elephant Six Collective, but a lot from the Orbiting Human Circus specifically, and mm. specifically that EP, the Orbiting Human yes. Circus, and also that first music tapes album as well. Mm. Um, I definitely agree with how you describe the sound. I <laughs> personally always describe Neutral Milk and anything from the Elephant Six Collective as kind of like if for some reason a circus just started falling down yeah like the side <laughs> of a cliff and everything was just like a bunch of clowns being like ah and like accordions just smashing against things that's kind of how they sound to me a lot of the time and then mm. combined with that is just all their fuzzed out production all their odd instrumental choices mm. and all their um like the production specifically just creates this warm nostalgic glow to everything mm. and then obviously you've got those hypnagogic and surreal lyrics <laughs> um yeah i was thinking about i think the last song on the first music tapes album or I don't, remember, I don't know if it's the last song but there's one song that ends with a bunch of children saying like goodbye superman yeah yeah, yeah. and i I read some story a long time ago that was like Julian Kostner got that when he was working as a pretzel salesman outside of an <laughs> elementary school and he just recorded yeah. the children saying that yeah <laughs> <laughs> which is the most like incredible thought of like some children just have a memory of Julian Kostner selling them pretzels <laughs> and they're just singing goodbye superman he's like good children with his little microphone yeah, yeah. i mean um kind of skipping ahead or i think we should do the show and then kind of leads into stuff but like sure. um i saw uh julian coster uh, la poisson rouge uh yeah. about a month less than a month ago but like yeah. uh, mid-september um and he opened that with showing us like a film from um the the elephant six collective mm. and like I think it wasn't even close to the end of the show. It was, like, partway through. He, like, said, you know that the kid, like, the boy from that film is here tonight. And he just pushed <laughs> over to him. And it's just, it's very surreal to see, like, a little kid that you know is, like, one of these guys, like, yeah. younger siblings. And it's both, like, his uh, younger sister and brother in the short film. Mm. And then to see him, he's just, like, he can't even, he's just, like, this grown-up <laughs> kid who's now as a band fully and is going yeah. to be here next week because the Poisson Rouge is a really great venue <laughs> and will take anybody. That's um, cool. And him just going, like, yeah, I don't know what day my show is, but also like, hi everyone. <laughs> and um, I don't know. It's I haven't had that kind of uh, awareness of youth and childhood, and also of like a person's roots when I went to a show in a while. Mm. Um, it kind of it kind of carries into a lot of what was happening at that show because it's yeah. a lot of. Uh, if, uh, anyone doesn't know anything about Julian Coster in terms of like showmanship, he does like to be around people. He does like to kind of create. Mm. Um, this feeling of like going to a circus or um, running away actually gets mentioned a lot. Yeah. Um, so for La Pose and Rouge, it was a lot nicer. It wasn't, uh, he didn't come up with a circus tent, which he did <laughs> once uh, for Mary's voice, I believe. Yeah. Um, but he, uh, they had like a nice little dinner section and everybody else was standing. Mm. Um, but he still like got up on, he reserved himself a seat so he could get up on the table there and sing and also mm. like had a red stool that he pulled out so he <laughs> could uh, bring his little megaphone out and sing to the orchestral, mm. um, which is a very important bird that we'll get to. Um, there's just all these little things that even though you're in a nicer setting or you're kind of in the sterile place, it makes it feel more inviting. Yeah. Uh, there's also, you know, he brought his little tape machine and he, uh, played some vinyls that were not what they appeared uh he kept claiming to be hypnotizing us when he played us <laughs> a song which i love yeah. um that's actually one of those things that's you can't really get unless you listen to the podcast or i guess like that theme of hypnosis and the basis of i can't keep 
I need to stop fucking with these headphones. Um, <laughs> but the idea of hypnosis and the basis of belief through hypnosis is like very central to the pod. Yes. Um, and also, I think a little bit to the design of this because a lot of it is very distant and fuzzy. Yeah. Um, and kind of puts you in the state of like having to listen and give your full attention. Yeah, I think there's an aspect yeah. to um, the music in the pod as well, but the music specifically, and the music obviously interwoven into the pod. I mean, he obviously made the soundtrack for it. Um, that has an element of like kind of lulling you into a sense of childhood again, into mm-hmm. a sense of naivety. And I think through that, there's like, throughout all his music, there's an aspect of like, I think a lot of nostalgic works are very content to just kind of like fuzz things out mm. and lay you back and be very mellow. But there's a really powerful aspect um, to the orbiting human circus. I mean, in literal like power of like the volume, the intensity of it, it just, mm. g- it goes very hard at it times. It does. Um, um, quite yeah. literally in like just the force of like percussion or just like mm. the amount of singing saws he used. Mm-hmm. And I think it speaks to a very, um, in, like it speaks to a belief he has in um, like the mindset of childhood and how it can mm. bleed through and still as an adult and still through performance and still has like all these powers over us. I think a mm. lot of what I compare um, Julian and a lot of the Elephants Six Collective and Orbiting Human Circus artistic intense to is Maurice Sendak. Mm. Um, specifically, I, I could easily imagine um, all of their music soundtracking where the wild things are for me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Really, really expertly, I think. Yeah. Um, but um, I don't know. Just to kind of linger the show, because now I'm thinking about the podcast a lot more. Um, yeah. <laughs> you want to describe just what the podcast is about? Sure. So yeah. um, the Orbiting Human Circus of the Air, which is kind of the distinction for the podcast mm-hmm. overall else, um, is a fictional radio show uh, that takes place and the ballroom at the top of the Eiffel Tower. So, like, every night, and this is, like, the most popular broadcast in the world, yeah. sinning saws are flying off the shelves in Paris. <laughs> Teenagers love sinning saws. Um, every single night, there's a feature presentation, which are these, like, really weird, interesting tapes, uh, mainly, like, people telling insane stories. Yes. Um, and there are these acts, which are, like, uh, a cricket sinning um, and then a cricket telling a story uh, and an operatic flea and all these like very absurdist but also like if you, you want know... to say really quickly who the flea is voiced by I forgot. would you like to because I know it's a good one it's, <laughs> it's just been a like, I haven't, I'm trying to remember I know the I remember yeah. that when I initially listened to it I was like I know that guy's won an Oscar. Oh, wait, are you talking about the cricket and not the flea? I think it's be. the flea, though. Because uh, the, fl- the flea is very heavy in season two. Oh, is he? Yes. Hmm. The cricket's season one. The cricket's the one who tells the story about the, the doll maker. <laughs> the clock maker and doll maker. <laughs> um, you were saying that? <laughs> um, and in the actual like reality of this fictional show, there's a janitor in the Eiffel Tower who desperately wants to be on the air. Yes. Um, he has debilitating stage fright. He uh, fumbles onto the stage through the heating ducts, but he very much wants to be on the air. Mm. And the entirety of the podcast is the slow unraveling of the dual reality of there's this narrative that Julian's created, uh, the janitor, always referred to as Julian the janitor, Mm. um, that he's created where he has an announcer in his head and he has an audience who's always listening to him. But at the same time, there's obviously this very deep loneliness and sadness um, and past he's trying to escape by living in this 
reality, this radio show mm-hmm. that by the end of the first season is revealed to have fully been like a coping mechanism he has. Yeah. Um, he is actually a janitor at the Eiffel Tower, um, <laughs> but in a semi-more normal world. In a much more normal world than <laughs> in a, in a slightly, the one that's presented initially. What's funny is it's slightly more normal. There's just no ballroom. <laughs> um, there's no ballroom in the Eiffel yeah. Tower. There's The radio show does kind of exist. Like mm. uh, John Cameron is an actor in this world. Yeah. Um, he is still dating Cary Grant from the sound <laughs> of it. Um, and also there is a show that Julian can kind of work with, but like... The only people that he's interacting with day to day are a night watchman who is in both series, yes. both seasons, um, and uh, a ticket booth uh, con- person like for the Eiffel Tower and um, the actual owner, quote unquote, of the type Eiffel Tower, the manager yeah. of the of the <laughs> tourist. <laughs> the trap. owner of the Eiffel Tower. <laughs> the owner of the Eiffel Tower, quote unquote, is very bumbling and fun. It's it's very comedy um, in both seasons. Yes, but the um, you were talking about how in the ballroom they part of like the there's like a salon aspect to the yes, ballroom of yeah. just like a bunch of like very aristocratic people gathering and it's yes. like the height of like social status and class to be up there exactly. and like the thing they do is like you said they play these tapes that usually are like stories or interviews yes um and they're it's there's a really uh, nice contrast with Julian who's bumbling <laughs> around and bumbling and has this podcast and is a show in his head who are just like Julian the janitor is climbing through the ducks again and seems to be avoiding, not doing a good job yeah. of avoiding rats. And he's like, oh, I don't know where the rats are. They're everywhere. <laughs> and then they cut to um, the ballroom where they're playing the tapes and they play some of the saddest stories I've ever heard. In my oh, life. my God. Yeah, it's. It's like that little bit of reality. It's also, um, I don't know if you heard these yet, but there mm. are these PSA announcements. Um, the one I really want to talk about because it's very central is the Great Resuscitating Platypus of the North, which I believe is mentioned in episode four mm. um, for the first time, is this running theme of this um, fairy tale that has to be preserved for children mm. because, and this is what the PSA literally says, it is proven that children are more likely to recover and not to fall back into illness if they believe yeah. that when they see this platypus reciting poetry to them at their bedside, um, that means they're brave and they're good kids and they're healthy and they can make a wish and yeah. they're obviously going to hope to be better. And that will make they'll just be so enthralled in the belief of seeing this platypus that they're hoping to see because they're sick, um, that yeah. it will make them better. It is yeah. it is just this uh, paradigm of belief in the power of it um in this platypus and when the platypus comes on the show because it does it is the goofiest thing (laughs) in the world because they just like you could tell the foley artist is just flapping like scuba flippers (laughs) (laughs) even like have him fumble with the mic and it's the loud it's the one point where the mic ever has like loud reverb is the platypus wacky (laughs) yeah i was thinking of like it reminded me of like the costume of like the creature from the Black Lagoon and the like slapping sound. <laughs> exactly. And, <laughs> and you just—it's this beautiful moment, yeah. but you just have to laugh at it at the same time. Um, let me tell you, uh, I'll keep this somewhat brief because it is eighty percent of what I talk about whenever I talk about this sh- this show. Yeah. Um, the the current version that you can listen to is a remastering. Yes. It's just so that even though. Um, it's not the best quality. You can hear all the little details. It's a little bit easier to hear. Like uh, they did a lot of audio little stuff, um, especially like with dialogue. It's very natural yes. dialogue, which is fun, yeah. even though it's very comedy leaning. Um, so everything's a normal reissue until you get to episode eight, uh, which is the final episode of the original season. Mm. It's also titled Director's Cut. That's because when they workshop for season two, they realized 
we really need to switch what we're doing for right now. Because mm. um, how it originally ended, um, in, in the fictional reality, there's to keep the janitor from going on the air, they chained a polar bear to the microphone. And John Cameron, who is terrified of losing the show and definitely is going to because of how bad this episode is going with the polar bear, yeah. uh, attempts suicide via polar bear. <laughs> Julian stops him. Um, and this is the only time where it like suddenly gets bleak. Um, yeah. And it's still there as he gets mauled by the bear and has to go to the hospital. Yeah. Um, for a good bit of the episode, it's unchanged. It's a bunch of characters, you know, checking in on him, making sure he's okay. Julian trying to talk, um, but being in kind of a dream state, not fully present. Um, and then he uh, gets his revelation with the great recitating platypus. He comes, he actually, like, is powers himself to the studio with the platypus, like, yeah. pulling it from his dreams to the... Because they mention multiple times the platypus is a mirage. But yeah. he, like, pulls it out of being a mirage into reality. Um, to save the show, the platypus almost speaks, and then in the original cut, it goes straight back to a hospital bed, and it's much bleaker um, yeah. because his boss in the real world is explaining that, and it's it's kind of been implied. You hear him a couple times in the series. Whenever you just hear like a very thick French accented man screaming Julian's name, yeah. that's the boss trying to pull him out of his daydream. Yeah. Um, uh, he, at least originally, and I think it might come back. Uh, threw a bucket at him while he was cleaning at the top of the tower and concussed him, mm. and he fell, yeah. and is in recovery. So it is fully. It's it's fully. He's he in a coma. He fell from the top of the Eiffel Tower. He fell from the top of the Eiffel Tower, <laughs> and they don't know if he's gonna make it. And I was, I believe, fourteen. It's an incredible fall if you fall from the uh, top of the Eiffel Tower. Yeah. And <laughs> are in a position of not just splat. <laughs> <laughs> I believe I was fourteen when that came out. Um, <laughs> And it was the summer, and I was in a very emotionally distraught place for a multitude of reasons. Yeah. And I listened to that episode, and I didn't <laughs> want to finish the series, I should also say. Yeah. But I listened to it anyway, and I had a panic attack. <laughs> 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 at the at one, <laughs> the reveal that he's in a coma and dying. And two, um, I think there was just something about when he sings... Um, uh, oh my god, the fact that I can't remember the actual name of the song mm. is evil. <laughs> Considering, um, yeah, when he sings City of Lights um, yes. for the first time where he actually fully sings it is the end of that episode. Mm. And it just hits you yeah. so hard. <laughs> That's also the first song on the EP. Yes, the yeah. Being Human Circus. And it's really funny that contrast because that's the introduction to the world of yeah. the EP of just like... <laughs> Lulling you into this, like, nice dream state. And meanwhile, on the podcast, <laughs> it is almost like a death sentence. It's it's weirdly, it was it was meant to be, like, this sudden rush of relief because you're yeah. away from that and you never go back to it. Um, and it's like, okay, at least he feels like he's safe. Because mm. he can hear, what the thing is, like, you process that, like, oh, no, what he's hearing is probably what he actually is hearing in the yeah. real world. Um, with, like, Letitia mm. uh, and Coco, I believe, are the two characters who, like, sit with him. And then there's the um, director or whatever its actual title is, uh, Mr. Sion. Uh, Sion? Yeah. Yes, French. Um, <laughs> someday I will remember how to say it. Sion, Jim, French. French. The French names, you French know. man. Um, <laughs> with a C. <laughs> um, and it just kind of 
it was being overwhelmed into like comfort. It was very much like weighted blanket of like yeah. you're okay. <laughs> but I I was in a, a different city than Texas on a dorm bed mm. for like a summer program, just bawling my eyes out in hyperventilating. <laughs> and now it's it's nicer because it's just like he's um the implication is he's dreaming that he is uh hurt as badly as he is. He's just like in a depressive state probably. Uh, in the remastered Sleeping. version? Yes, because he... The director um, was cut. He is the yeah. nicer version. It's nicer. Let me actually just look at his name and remember mm. how to say the start of it. It's like Shenard? <laughs> I swear to God, it's something like so that. So did he change the ending specifically so that a season two would be viable? I think so. It's, mm. a, it's a mix of I think season two would be viable and also so that there were obviously things that he wanted to do with mm. this narrative. Yeah. Um, it's mentioned multiple times at the end of the episode. You hear, like, everybody he worked with because that's kind of what this is about. Yeah. Um, uh, it always mentions that he workshops workshopped the second season. That's never mentioned with the first one. Yeah. I think the first one he had, like, a very clear idea of what it was, and that was about escapism and, like, uh, overcoming, like, not even overcoming, but kind of running away and um, re-examining trauma. Yeah. Um, and then when it came to making that into a larger series and also kind of keeping those two worlds existing. It's like, well, it can't have him yeah. be stuck. Yeah. Um, so it is, it's just straight up, it's Shenard. It is Shenard. Not the most um, exciting show if he's just in a coma. Exactly. Um, but I think it was just like to fully pull you out of that yeah. world was the thought of the first, the first time around. I do appreciate the edit. Um, I also appreciate that like largely nothing was very much changed. Mm. Um, the, the shouting was there from the beginning. I remember always yeah. being confused about who that voice was when I was younger. Um, and there are, like, these little things I really, really like. Well, it does uh, change the thematic intent of it. So I'm it curious does. where you kind of lie on it. When I first – and keep in mind, like, this happened between 2016, I want to say, and 20, um, 2018 yeah. was when it came back. And it finished in 2020. Um, okay. Because one of the the last holiday things, one of his uh, holiday live streams, was uh, directly about um, the Orbiting Human Circus. Because mm. Julian Coster always does caroling, uh, <laughs> even through COVID, he still did caroling. Just like um, by himself. No, like he had a bunch of accompaniment. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, did, he was just playing his songs, and also he did like weekly little like um, they were mainly Orbiting Human Circus related yeah. streams where he'd do the EP or. Um, songs from they were more songs added for season two. That's adorable. Uh, it's very it's very sweet. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, when when it happened, I think when I I re-listened to it, and it took me a good year or two to re-listen to it. Yeah. Um, was it just too emotionally heavy to listen to? I was just very stressed about it. I wasn't yeah. sure what they did. Um, oh, you're I, talking about so you saw the remastered version yes, come out, and you and were I was very, hesitant to listen. To yeah, it, I, I kept seeing them. Because I was keeping up with them. They had a Tumblr page. They also <laughs> had... They still do. Yeah. Um, and they also have um, a really good website that I liked looking at just to look at. Because mm. um, when the season ended, they also did a quick little holiday thing of the Second Imaginary Symphony, mm. which is uh, one of the albums. So it kind of turned one of the albums into a little story. It was very yeah. narrator gotcha. guiding you through things. It was very Charlie and the Chocolate Factory-esque. <laughs> it was very fun. Um, and then the... Uh, remaster started coming out and i was very scared i like kept checking like transcripting people to see if they noticed differences and yeah. like everything was just like this is tweaked a little bit you can hear the background we couldn't hear before i was like okay 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 yeah. um i think i was also very scared that things that were directly correlated would get cut like the psa about the great resuscitating platypus and the um 
I believe also the city of drowned sailors. I kept thinking that would get cut. Mm. Um, I don't know why. I was just very scared of that PSA getting cut. It's it's smaller in terms of importance, but it's also my one of my favorite parts in the entire show. <laughs> um, and then when I, when eight came out, I was just staring at it like I don't want to do it again because <laughs> I was just so scared about what it would be. Yeah, and then really I listened to it and it was very like oh, it was very much a relief, but it was also like. I still was kind of I kept thinking about what it was originally yeah. when I was hearing it. Um was it, yeah. So when you initially listened to it and it was like you were in a really bad place and <laughs> uh like obviously it's an incredibly bleak ending mm. and almost like a judgment on the escapism and kind of like warm yeah. nostalgia that's been present. That was it. what scared me was that yeah. it would kind of double down on that in a weird way. Yeah, so when it was instead presented as uplifting somewhat and kind of like hopeful was it did you see that as like did you like did you, <laughs> did you like that more was it like kind of cheap what, what was your reaction to it i don't it? think it was i think for a little bit i was afraid it was cheap but i, yeah. I still liked it mm. it was like it's so weird to say this but it was more like i'm really happy it's not that grim anymore but now i'm mm. scared about what it is yeah. um because i i never saw it as very bleak um oh really yeah, I, I, there was something about the way it was presented. I can't explain it now that it's not really mm. around. I think it is still, like, on YouTube. Yeah. I tried to double-check, but I forgot. Um, or it's more like I didn't really <laughs> want to hear it again. Yeah. But what it is now is I'm sure you can find it on, like, Internet Archive exactly. or something. Yeah. What it is now is it's um, Chenard basically saying, I'm really sorry that I'm, like, pushing you, but yeah. I, I need you to understand why I'm doing it. Because mm. um, it's the same thing with John Cameron. Um, John Cameron doesn't really hate Julian. It's just that yeah. he's costing his job <laughs> um, <laughs> he's just um, you know being a terrible janitor yeah. <laughs> he's just really bad at his job <laughs> it's the same thing where like he's not doing his job but he also can tell that this and everybody always calls julian a kid in the show this person is like really desperate for some sort of attention but also too scared to ask for it yeah um which is a great dichotomy um, <laughs> uh so it's this this very like sad but sweet moment still of him saying like you know i want to help but i can't do anything because i can't come in like he literally says yeah. i hope you can hear me through the door mm. um instead of i hope you can hear me because you're in a coma <laughs> which is what he's imagining it as which makes more sense anyway i think yeah um i think it was just all these things that actually made it feel a lot more rich and then also the full break of the platypus starts speaking and now it stops is no yeah. longer the hospital it's now chenard like getting on to him for not doing anything and, yeah. and talking to Coco. And that's when it's revealed like, Oh, he's been telling this story. Mm -hmm. um, and what we listen to is like his brain's imagination of what he's telling Coco. Yeah. Um, and that's season two. And that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And it's like, there's still a mystery about like um, wh why he's at the Eiffel tower. He does not know why he's at the Eiffel tower. <laughs> he only remembers his great grandfather mm -hmm. and um, the hypnotism act. Yeah. Um, he doesn't really know anything. He's like slowly recovering memories. Um, like he just remembered his stepfather like recently, it feels like, before he talks to Coco, stuff like that. Yeah. Um, so that that at least makes it a show. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, when you're in the when you're in the world of the podcast, it's really simple to just be oh, so weird and interesting. And yeah. like the the rules being ghoul like tape is so <laughs> Ah, so meaty. <laughs> meaty as So hell. meaty. <laughs> Love when a tape is meaty. And then uh, I, I should have at least told you to listen to the holiday episode because that yeah. was fully just a tape. Mm. Um, and that tape is so beautiful. 
Um, mm. I think that is the ethos of the show is that really? tape because it's about a, you, yeah, what is it? Yeah, so it's it's a Christmas special. It's a homeless man in a cafe telling the story about a very young rich boy who mm. had lost his parents. He's living with his aunt. Um, he basically gets sick and accidentally destroys this Christmas tree, which has like all these priceless heirlooms. His aunt screams at him, obviously, and is freaked out. And then the kid collapses because he's sick. Mm. Um, He sleeps through for four days, wakes up, uh, having the last thing he heard before he passed out be, you ruined Christmas, Mm. Um, sits up, (laughs) processes, there's no Christmas tree, Mm. there's no decorations, all the trees are in the gutter, and he thinks it's December 25th. Yeah. And he's in this fevered state, and he just panics. So he like runs into the street of streets of New York. This like very clueless kid, um, trying to figure out what's going on. He sees people putting down decorations. Somebody tells him like Christmas is over, good riddance. That just makes him spiral even more because yeah. this is like the only real thing he has with his aunt, where she's like nice and yeah. okay. Um, is Christmas, and then he stumbles on this guy sleeping in an alleyway, <laughs> assumes he's Santa. Um, starts stealing stuff for him, like gives him food, gives him like little gifts, is just like crying and weeping because he doesn't know what's going on. He just wants Christmas back. Um, You know, the guy's nice enough to take him to his house once he like figures out like, oh, it's this rich kid who's gone missing for a couple of days. Um, But he's uh, sees in the paper that he's really ill. He's probably not going to make it. Uh, He goes, and this is the important thing, I think, he goes and like does enough work um, to just to like buy a Christmas suit, like a, a Santa costume, goes back to the kid's house, like makes it apparent that this is necessary, mm. and just tells the kid everything he needs to hear, like after taking a shower, after yeah. getting himself cleaned up, and like telling this kid a story. He mentions multiple times he's Jewish. He mentions that like he doesn't know what this, what's wrong with this kid, and he yeah. doesn't really know if he's supposed to do anything or if this is his place, but he just like can't avoid what's going on yeah. once he sees it. And then the aunt gets it once he, like, sees what he's doing. Um, so she immediately, like, forces everybody on the staff to, like, make a Christmas as fast as possible um, for this kid. Mm. So, you know, when he wakes up the next day, he has it. Um, and the story literally just ends with the kid got better. That's that's <laughs> it. That's the final line. And it's, ah, ah. <laughs> <laughs> and obviously that goes back to, like, it goes back to platypus, obviously. And it goes back to one of the kind of weird central themes of the show which is hypnosis and the power of it and like hypnosis as a kind of like it kind of aligns and equates like childhood to hypnosis in a certain way of just like the power that you can just believe anything Mm -hmm. and you'll instantly become whatever person you want to be like the child believes that you know that this person is santa and it just becomes santa and same thing Mm -hmm. with the black post of like i believe that this thing will make me better and so it'll make me better i think that's kind of the end goal of like how julian views childhood and nostalgia and hypnotism of just like a way to make yourself better of Mm -hmm. a way to fix you of a way of like just believing so strongly and the end result will always be like that will help you deal with whatever you're dealing with yeah Mm -hmm. and there's this thing that like i think it only becomes apparent with multiple i see i think multiple listens because i keep thinking about it Mm -hmm. but like there's these common motifs or there's always a mention of his great grandfather's great grandfather over and over again because that's like the only part of childhood he really felt safe in yeah um because there's mentions of i I think i said it briefly but like childhood abuse um from a stepfather there's these little 
there's the thing of like his audience itself, his like coping mechanism of yeah. assuming he always has an audience. This is an episode one um, <laughs> was given to him by his stepfather hitting him over the head. Yeah. Um, and it just happening to align with the escapism he was doing, which was introducing a bunch of bells and then ringing yeah. in his ear relates to the bells. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, that's one of those things where it's like there was always like this weird very intense bleakness mm. in what was talked about but also the way that you look at it is always referenced um yeah. like uh john cameron um asked julian like what how because uh julian says like get out of the thing that i know how you get an act um which is a big secret in mm. the original like season that john cameron doesn't even know where he gets his orchestral which is a bird that plays all 47 instruments of the orchestra um or his tap dancing mice or his operatic flea he doesn't know where they come from because julian's giving them to him but he also like tells him very cryptically like all it's just about how you look at it if you look at a mouse and you want to crush it it's never gonna tap dance for you (laughs) if you that's literally how he phrases it if you love it and you nurture it and you take care of it then you can teach it how to dance or you can see if it has rhythm (laughs) like you know it's such a uh it's such a great way to frame anything it really is because i think there's (laughs) i think there's like um like a very easy way people often view childhood and nostalgia is just pure comfort like just comfort food nothing more like it's a waste of time essentially Mm. but it's very nice in the meantime but i think julian has this belief of kind of just childhood and hypnosis and all those things not being necessarily an escape because it wasn't like childhood like you were saying with his stepfather was perfect or anything or just Mm. perfectly nice like you were hurting on the same level that you feel as an adult um and getting there it just kind of opens the possibilities again yeah and it keeps it keeps coming back especially in season two i haven't finished finished but like Mm. there's all these little moments where um during his grandfather's hypnotism his great-grandfather's hypnotism acts yeah. There's like these little moments where he gets very upset and afraid hmm. um, because of something they reveal because, yeah. you know, hypnotism plays on your subconscious. Hmm. Um, and so do dreams. So it's a thing of like you can't fully avoid everything, but you hmm. can also process it a little bit easier. Um, there's like a little bit where it's it's very brief, but it's really apparent that Julian, the janitor in specific, is a very queer character. Yeah. Um, there's a little bit in season two about him being terrified at a, an act that revealed what he loved, revealing a boy's name, and then him running because he assumes everyone saw it. Yeah. Um, that's not something that he was even conscious of. He says multiple times, I wasn't thinking about him. I was thinking about you know being in this safe place. I was thinking about this moment. Yeah. But that's something he subconsciously loves. Um, and when he like confesses that, his grandfather just tells him, you didn't there were no fireflies, which is the thing that spelled it out. There were no, um, nothing like projecting this. It was everybody saw what they wanted to see. Um, And you just kind of felt like you you saw everybody else's. Mm. Um, Because there's that safety of like, you are inside your mind when you're doing stuff like that, when you're reminiscing, when you're thinking about these things that are deep inside you. But there's also Mm. like this intense want to share that and to be seen with those things. And that shame of it um, just keeps kind of bubbling up. I, that's just such an interesting dichotomy that I really haven't seen discussed when talking about nostalgia. No, I haven't seen that either. Yeah. Mm. I don't know. It's just, it's very brief, um, but it comes up a couple times. And it's also just like all of his 
um when you process that like a lot of these are his dreams there's always like mentions of like crushes and mentions <laughs> of like no, there's these things like obviously he doesn't really talk about because he doesn't yeah. talk to people so it's like <laughs> romance and um secret admirers yeah. and like the fact that he signs the acts love anonymous like all these little things that he's like bearing because he doesn't really talk to people and he doesn't have relationships anymore yeah. um since it's in his mind since his great-grandfather I don't know. It's just such a small thing that I really love that kind of like tints a lot of the show. <laughs> There's also oh you didn't you didn't hear it. I don't want to spoil the best one. Oh, you can say it. I I don't I also kind of don't want to spoil it for listeners. Oh, for all the people who are but going to listen to this. There's a wonderful podcast, yeah. <laughs> there's a wonderful wonderful line about a polar bear um that I think about all the time, especially considering uh in the live performance the only two performers on stage um, sans a puppet version of the orchestral uh, was Julian Coster and um, I always forget his name, but um, one of the horn players. Uh, in, oh, uh, I know who you're talking about. Yeah, he's he's on all the albums. He's he is, yeah. he's very uh, prominent prominent um, co-collaborator. I'm sure his name is in there. He's got to be here records somewhere. Here for these guys are visual so, aid. <laughs> there's so many people. In there's these. so many people. Is it Patrick Jennings? Maybe. Oh my yeah. God. I I wish I knew names. <laughs> That's what I'm learning today. I believe so. It's always been your biggest problem. Robbie? Just never know names. It was either Robbie or it was John. <laughs> <laughs> That's where I'm at. <laughs> names are the bane of my existence. <laughs> it could be worse. <laughs> I know. That's a pretty easy bane to shoulder. Yeah. <laughs> as far as banes go. <laughs> but uh, the EP, uh, to give you something, <laughs> to throw you a phone. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I do really love listening to the EP by itself. Um mm. Uh, obviously, City of Lights is a go-to. Yeah, um, the EP is just a fully formed work in and of itself. And <laughs> yeah, City of Lights is my favorite personally, mm. but it's four songs, I believe. Yes, four yeah. songs. And I think it was released in 2017. 2017. Yeah, it came out the um, while I was graduating high school, mm. and um, yeah, I remember listening to that and kind of closing a big chapter in my life while um, mm. listening to City of Lights and all these works that they're very much about. Um, they're not even necessarily about childhood. They just yeah. kind of feel like that. They feel like dream yeah. states where all these um, just kind of subconscious things obviously float in from childhood. Yeah. Um, like a, a recurring image is obviously mm. the dream that I think almost every, like, a, a lot of kids have. And I think some people carry it with them as performing on a stage for, like, a bunch yes. of people. The first song is that. Um, mm. That's what it is in the show. And that's also what it sounds like. It sounds yeah. like this beautiful, triumphant backing track that you kind of <laughs> give yourself yeah. Um, regardless of what song you're singing. <laughs> yeah, it's fun that, like, um, so often a nightmare people have is exactly what you said of being forced to perform in front of people. And, like, <laughs> usually, you know, something terrible happens that reveals them to be embarrassments. But, I mean, mm -hmm. I think the core of that nightmare is just um, being seen and being observed by people. Yeah. Um, and the interesting thing about the Orbiting Human Circus is a lot of times a performance is kind of in it's obviously an intimate act, but it's an act of kind of sharing truths about yourself. Yeah. For Julian, it's not exactly a terror necessarily. In fact, it's a comfort most of the time. Mm -hmm. Not in the way of like, oh, I don't have to be myself. I'm performing this character. But in a really uh, real kind of like tran almost transgressive way of like um, just creating this intimacy between the audience and the performer that yeah. I don't really feel in a lot of other things. 
Yeah, I mean, like I said, he was he literally saved himself a table where he could stand yeah. in front of people, um, and like had a little stool mm. uh, before the show. Me and um, a friend that I took with me, or I say took with me, but like needed somebody who knew about Julian Coster to go with. Um, <laughs> you do need both, a guide. A you lot need of time, a guy yeah. to go with you <laughs> just in case. Um, we both noticed that there was uh, like one of his like specifically a sinning saw like bowstring like on the floor just yeah. because he left that while he was practicing, um, and. You know, I, I really love the fact that, um, and he's done this all with all the tours of Orbiting Human Circus, I believe. The encore isn't a song mm. or a performance. It is a game. Yeah. Um, he he gives everybody uh, candles um, <laughs> to play a game of, I believe it was just called Fireflies. Yeah. Um, and you have to, like, balance a little LED candle as best mm. you can. Some people ignored that and were holding it and running, <laughs> obviously. But, like, you know, you balance it as best you can. Um, and two people have little bird cages and just tap you and take your firefly. And whoever mm. has the most, whoever has the most fireflies um gets two years of good luck second most <laughs> gets uh one year and whoever is the final firefly who has escaped all the firefly catchers um yeah. gets three years of good luck <laughs> Dude, there's kind of no way to lose <laughs> given that which gets back to just like all those things in the orbiting human circus of just like there are all these kind of strange rules and games that mm. are only there and only produce the results they do because of belief in them yeah yeah um i think it's like i think it's just phenomenal that like like you were talking about the game as an encore is just returning people to just a state of like just being completely uninhibited mm -hmm. by what's going on around them and i think a lot of that has to do and a lot of the reason we lose that dream state that child state is because of um perceptions and paradigms and kind of systems of belief that we put on ourselves mm -hmm. um and it's really interesting to me that you know performance would seem to be one of the most like false ways you can be but in doing so and, like, creating that environment, it just kind of brings people into that hypnotized state of, like, all right, let's be done with these kind of, like, let's not be done entirely with, like, the concepts of systems and, like, ideas and, and beliefs and such because that's what powers the orbiting human circus and the mm -hmm. nostalgia and all the childlike wonder of it. But mm -hmm. you just lose a lot of those um, really constricting ways of belief upon yourself. Yeah. Mm. It's very much a it's it's much more a relief I would say than an escape a lot of the time. Yeah. It's much more like this is a place where you are okay to like yell with something. Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> I think um, leave and escapism and like running away has immediate negative connotations of you're not dealing with your problems. Mm -hmm. Of obviously you're literally running away from them. Yeah. Um, but I think it's I think it's one of the most like I think it's one of the reasons I returned to uh, the Elephant Six Collective a lot because. It does seem to be escapism, but it's escapism to a um, oftentimes uh, as much of a wondrous and comforting place it is, it's also a terrifying place, yeah. a very scary place in a very primal way. Um, and I think it's often a way that uh, that environment and that kind of state of being is a very um, conducive way of dealing with what's going on inside of you. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it feels much more productive than it feels unproductive, weirdly <laughs> enough. Um, even with season two, uh, season two is so much longer than season one. <laughs> and yet it feels like it actually is doing things, which I find very interesting. Yeah, because um, there's not necessarily, <laughs> necessarily a plot to season one, or at yeah. least a traditional one. It's I, more of just, very I mean, there's a mystery that mm. is eventually uncovered, obviously, but there's mm. a lot of just kind of Julian wandering around being a bad janitor. <laughs> 
it's just astonishing how bad of a gene editor he is. Like, yeah. there's always someone being like, he's in the ducks again. And just, <laughs> he's in the vents and he's destroying things. And it's just like, how, how does he get this job? How is he doing this? That's the thing. How did, why is he on the Eiffel Tower? It also mystery. makes you wonder about the structure of the Eiffel Tower in this I world. I agree. It really does. <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing. When you, when you have to contemplate the fact that there's a ballroom at the top of it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, that's just, like, the ticket to ride. Like, you just yeah. have to accept that part, that, that there's a ballroom. Cool. You, you get the vibe of it. But other times they just keep talking about how he's hiding in the architecture of the Eiffel Tower. Yeah. And it's like, they need to reveal just what else is going on in this tower. Because in no books. world does it look like the Eiffel Tower we have. <laughs> uh, I do like that that kind of carries over for just a little bit. There's mentions of, like, um, Doug Eiffel's. Or I say Doug Eiffel because that's a character <laughs> in another podcast. Oh, my God. Um <laughs> Eiffel, the architect's apartment uh, yeah. being present and, like, the ticket booth and stuff like that that makes it feel a little bit more real yeah. in, like, a weird way. But then also he does <laughs> crawl through a duct at one point. <laughs> it literally points out the fact that, like, he dreams about this all the time, but it is yeah. bad in here and it is tight. <laughs> it is hard to move. Um, that's the thing that I do appreciate. They still have the um, the announcer, the narrator. They yeah. still have this very like old timey feeling. Mm. Um, when I first listened to it, I thought all the time about the fact this feels very like nineteen thirties, nineteen forties to me. Yeah, um, I think that was the immediate time period I just assigned to it as yeah. well. And yeah. I mean, Cary Grant's in it. <laughs> and Cary Grant's in it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Manny Patinkin sings a song in episode Manny two. Manny Patinkin's in it. Yeah, he did the little cheap trick uh, song. What? That was yeah. him? Yeah, that was him. <laughs> There's a little, there's a little bit in episode two, just as like kind of opening act. Do you, do you, do you know about Charlie Day and uh, Mary Elizabeth? Da, da, da? I know Charlie Day uh, is in it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah Hamlet, yeah. the uh, not Hamlet, um, the Macbeth bit. Yeah, I remember that. We're not in, a, we're not in the theater. We can say Macbeth. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think about that all the time, especially because the main reason they're there is because that devolves because John yes. Cameron is having a stress stream. <laughs> It's all these little things about the Orbiting Human Circus I love. I love that mm. John Cameron Mitchell is just a very stressed alcoholic yes. the entire time. <laughs> <laughs> um, honestly, in all versions of that show. Um, <laughs> and then uh, there's just something about Julian's voice I find very endearing immediately. I think yeah, I think he has very like um, yeah, no, it does because uh, he is just the voice of the janitor, which is you know the primary protagonist. Yeah. Um, he's voicing like almost everything. Um, I think he has a very, like, um, what's his name? Daniel Johnston. Mm -hmm. um, I'm realizing I don't think I've ever said his last name. Is that how his last name is said? Coster? Yeah. No, no, no. Oh. The, the um, <laughs> Nice to meet you, the unfinished album guy. You know what I'm oh talking about? Texas yeah. legend. Yeah. Uh, this is really embarrassing, as I say I'm a music aficionado. <laughs> um, I'm pretty sure I'm right. I'm just going to believe i'm right Dan believe jo it daniel believe johnson it. exactly yeah <laughs> daniel johnson has a quality of just singing a very kind of childlike voice very mm -hmm. simple melodies and julian has that same thing mm -hmm. of um very extraordinarily earnest voice yeah. um like literally sounds like it could it's just like presenting you like a macaroni sculpture <laughs> and like there's a fear that you're just gonna knock it down God, you're but sorry. <laughs> he's smiling so wide and it's his birthday so you gotta be nice to him it's it's honestly so funny there are there are child actors in season two and a little bit mm. in season one and it's the fact that he does sound so so similar to them he really does <laughs> he's yeah. in the exact same register there's there's a reason he's just called kid all the time <laughs> just like being your mid 50s yeah he's like 50 <laughs> Four or something? Yeah. 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 <laughs> I don't know. 
Lucas? He still has, like, the exact same expression if you look at photos yeah. from, like, now to the Elephant Six documentary. He just, Even... he doesn't look the exact same, obviously, no. but, like, but, like his, his expressions in his face are really, really similar. I read, a, I read a little article from, like, a local Californian um, paper. I forget if it was, um, my brain is saying it was, like, um, Burbank, but I might be wrong. Yeah. Um, because when he was in high school, he went from New York to to California and then was just kind of stuck there and that's yeah. where he started Miss America um, mm. which is like pre even Chocolate USA um, to go like deep into stuff um, <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, there's photos of him and he almost looks exactly the same it's kind of crazy really? um, yeah and that's when he is like a gawky like barely 18 year old <laughs> I don't know it's just like he never he's, lost he's that like gawky teenager look no. it's pretty wild always there it's just now instead of like like clothes that are falling apart it's very much like oh no that's his little hat yeah that's the hat he's been wearing for that's like 30 years he's been years wearing straight. for 30 years <laughs> might not have, it might just not have left his head for 30 years straight i would not doubt it <laughs> yeah there's a feeling when you're watching like the elephant six documentary that none of these guys like change clothes or shower yeah uh, might give them their power actually it might <laughs> yeah, it's one of those constrictions you know <laughs> but no um I don't know. There's just such a wonderful little aura to it. It's the fact that, you know, a lot of it's based on collaboration. Yes. A lot of it's very clearly, like, talking about how you want to represent yourself here. Yeah. Um, I'm almost certain that um, Symphony Sanders said, I will have the thickest French accent no matter what. <laughs> and I love it for her. I love yeah. Letitia. Um, same thing with Jacques just being, like, a Brooklynite. <laughs> just for fun. Yeah. Um, there are these little bits that like do kind of pull you from it being anachronistic and yeah. just make, let you like live in the reality where yes they will mention Rocky and yes they will mention. <laughs> well, I think there's like going back to what you were saying about a collective. I think and these like shifting identities. I think there's a very um, strong belief and obviously the elephant six collective now the orbiting human circus of mm -hmm. just getting rid of kind of ego yeah. and any sense of um hierarchy into them um mm -hmm. like obviously um oh, what was i gonna say you um <laughs> yeah you're gonna have to edit this part out where i just um for like five minutes straight that's fine <laughs> <laughs> uh what was it fucking um i'll come to you <laughs> no it will um it's like a very just sincere belief that, um, I mean, uh, Neutral Milk Hotel uh, falls apart because Jeff Magnum obviously mm -hmm. doesn't really want to be doing it anymore, and the uh, pressures of fame, obviously, and so the music tapes are created. Mm -hmm. And um, I think the first music tapes album comes out um, like early 2000s, 1999, maybe. Yeah. Uh, and then from there Julian creates the Orbeing Human Circus much later on. Mm -hmm. It's v very uh, comforting to me to just see that he had a band, a, a very classical, not a very classical in their sound or anything, no, but, but like in structure, structure of it, there's yeah. a band and Julian was known as the auteur of it in the same way that Jeff Megan was known as the auteur of um, Neutral Milk Hotel. Mm -hmm. And he very quickly wanted to do away with that. Yeah. Um, and he created the Orbiting Human Circus in response to that of like, no, 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 it's not me. It's, you know, everybody it's who's everybody. a part of it. And mm -hmm. obviously there's like a gazillion people in the Orbiting Human Circus li oh, yeah. <laughs> live act and band. Like every one of their recordings, there's like a thousand credits to them. Yeah. Yeah. 
the credit sheets uh, i wish that they were easier to find now um i think just because it's with wnyc yeah um allegedly the link takes you to the website which takes you to an actual list um which there used to be there was a really beautiful long list um mm. which i loved looking at i loved trying to pick apart like who did what yeah um because i'm one of those people and then <laughs> i think with it being like fully now a wnyc hosted production yeah. um that link has just kind of been nixed um or it's, it's like you're just in a feedback loop of yeah. go look at wnyc and then you go to wnyc and it should be linking to the page on the website that doesn't exist anymore so it's just the website <laughs> do you know how julian got all these high profile guests for the orbiting human circus i think part of it was just um are they all, I, he are they all knew... just fans of the orbiting human circus and elephant sex stuff i will say the first thing is i know that he um... i just can't imagine charlie day just rocking out to a two-headed boy it just doesn't really make sense it... in my brain so part of it is definitely he knew a lot of people in um musical theater weirdly because mm. john cameron he worked on Hedwig. Yes. Um, and then that was kind of a connective. I know that there's also just like a lot of the actors talk to each other. Mm. Um, I don't know about Charlie Day still. I've been trying to figure that one out. No, I just don't know about the Sunny Cast. That's yeah, the one that's like the Ma- one Mandy that I Patinkin, don't really the know. Theater coll- connection there. Yeah, sense. like Mandy makes sense because yeah. also Mandy's worked with John before. Mm. Um, John Cameron Mitchell also was working on um, Anthem Humunculus simultaneously mm, with okay. Orbiting Human Circus. And Anthem Humunculus had Patty Lapone. So really? yeah. Whoa. And I, I Oh my so god, I was like about an... to say Meryl, but it's I swear to God. I <laughs> so there's swear a non zero <laughs> chance in the orbiting human circus season two that Patty Lapone just shows There is a non zero chance. She hasn't shown up yet, but there's a non zero chance. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's literally just all knowing people is very obvious. Yeah. Um, and I think the fact that it's with WNYC helps. Um, yeah, like it's WNYC give a sense and, of and Welcome to Night Fell. Uh Yes, point. they're an offshoot of yes. Welcome to Night Vale. Which is how I found out about this. There, I didn't... Are there any uh, lore connections between that, or is it purely just branding? Cecil Baldwin, um, I think, did a couple of the lines per Coco in the original episodes, and mm. then they got William Lowry, yeah. um, who uh, is, is also Coco's last name is also Lowry. Mm. Um, so that's, that's him for the rest of uh, the remasters and also for the rest of the show. Um, Cecil Baldwin is a in the last episode um presenting whale songs uh, mm. and i believe there's also <clears throat> there's some like other alums who do like kind of bit parts there's no real lore connection um yeah. weirdly enough like i feel like there's more connective tissue if you look at like uh john cameron mitchell is here doing this podcast welcome to nightville presents immediately once season one is done starts dream boy um, which is really similar to like John Cameron's kind of like early stuff yeah. uh, by Dane Terry, and then Anthem comes out, and there's this weird like almost pipeline that was directly created to help you get to Anthem, <laughs> <laughs> which is like pure early John Cameron. Yeah. Um, and both Dream Boy and um, uh, Anthem are very surreal, like almost horror stories, um, mm. focused on queer identity and like the the gay experience in the modern era yeah. um which is interesting and there's like just a smidge <laughs> of that in orbiting human circus just like the tiniest little smidge <laughs> yeah i'm curious uh, how much of a like queer element you identify in um your being human circus obviously like it's literally there to a certain yeah. extent but it's a very small piece of it it's like it's part of i think what makes up um two central characters identities mm. which is obviously john cameron um because he, uh, I believe it was said originally in season one that he's dating somebody, or he mentions Archie, yeah. um, which is Archibald, um, uh, who is Cary Grant. Never stated to be Cary Grant, but multiple we little, little winks and nods, Grant. it's Cary Grant. Um, <laughs> and that is that is fleshed out a little bit more in season two yeah. because it kind of focuses on like a play that he was working on um, with 
uh, Archie with Archie. Yeah. Um, that's like one of the big mysteries is what is Naughty Till New Year's? That's the play. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and also the New Year keeps getting brought up. Blah, 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 blah. And then with Julian, um, I don't want to say the line. There's a line <laughs> about polar bears. And also, like I mentioned yeah. in season two, the, the fact that he was in love with the boy, mm-hmm. um, that he very interestingly, it was his bully that he accidentally mm. made a bully because he became a target for other bullies when Julian did a little trick accidentally. And then, um, which was also hypnotism. Uh, <laughs> and then when he became a bully, everybody, yeah. all the other bullies went, well, he has a bully, so they don't have to deal with him. <laughs> but also Julian was nice to him, so he wasn't yeah. really a bully anymore. <laughs> um, Very complicated system of bullying. I know. <laughs> I feel like it's much more simplistic for most bullies. I agree. Just like, I don't like that person, and then they just kill him. And then he, like, I didn't process that he had a crush on his bully, so <laughs> it all works out, I guess. Um, it's it's very much there much more in season two. In season one, it's very it's very brief. It's yeah. my favorite line, um, and it also kind of correlates to this idea that he has all these. He has like this one very strong and good um, father figure, which is his great grandfather. Hmm. Um, but he doesn't really have any other paternal figures, and I think that kind of leads into his interaction with other people. He never really talks about his mom. Yeah. Um, so his mom's also something where he doesn't really have, like, a structure of safety. Mm. So I think that is part of it. There's, like, this feeling of, like, being seen by his great-grandfather yeah. that was there already. Mm. Um, I believe it's in... I believe it's in episode eight, or it's this first episode of season two. There's this really gorgeous line um, about his great-grandfather, like, rearranging stuff um, so that he he would was sitting so he didn't have a shadow, hmm. and then he rearranged objects to create shadows, and he only did that for Julian because Julian was like hiding from everybody, mm. and he knew that like he was still looking at him, yeah. but also wasn't willing to really interact with anybody yet, and that's like one of the few things that like brought him out. And that really reads as like knowing something's up yeah. with somebody and trying to like give them little hints that you see yeah. them, and like that whole yeah. fascination with his grandfather and uh, being feeling like he's more seen by the grandfather than anyone else speaks mm. to an interesting aspect of kind of the aesthetic music musically and the mm. um, narrative aesthetic yeah. of the orbiting human circus and the music that Julian makes, which is a fascination with um, the past mm. um, specifically in a way that's um, taking like very um, kind of like, almost like schmaltzy kind of bits of the past, like, mm-hmm. you know, like ballrooms and like fuzzed out tapes and such, and presenting them as these like extremely understanding things when obviously there's, you know, much more prejudice in those times. Yeah. Um, but they're presented here as, you know, the present is so overwhelming and the future is terrifying. So the past it becomes not the literal past, but like this kind of mythical, surreal place. Mm. Um in which, you know, that you find yourself and you develop yourself as a person. Yeah. Mm. There's a, um, oh God, it, I just had it in my head, but there's like a little, <laughs> a little beat. Oh, give me one second. Yeah, no <laughs> It'll come to me. <laughs> but there's like a little beat in one of the episodes that I wanted to mention. Yeah. Uh, da, 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 da. I love when I go da, 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 because that means that I'm da, really da, da, out da. of it. <laughs> <laughs> Just low, drop a little da 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 Oh, it was about the music. Um, oh my yep. god, my brain is farting. Have <laughs> <laughs> something else in your head. It'll come to me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to look at these, but I will. Oh, those are your notes. <laughs> yeah. 
Oh well, my God. some of it is notes. These are the notes. Damn. <laughs> you take notes in a fascinating way. Yep. See Charlie Day to listen to Mary Ellison Ellis. I love how you pointed that out as though that was easy to find. Maybe <laughs> that's in brackets. Oh, God. Um, Have we covered everything in there? No. There's so many notes. Not at all. You could just pick one. I can, but it, I just had it. It was like a very specific thing about one of the, hmm. the songs. Oh, yeah. God. It'll come to me at some No, time. but specifically in like a um, queer context, too. It, mm-hmm. The fascination in the past because it um, was interesting to me because obviously, like very blanket statement, but, you know, much more pre- prejudice back then, much more enforcement of gender roles and such. But they become this, like, like I was saying, they become this aggrandized, surreal thing, mm-hmm. this mythical thing, and then everything kind of loses the... Um, hostility that it had before like all these kind of like ideas of like gender like the ballroom is very like as a, an idea is very you know classist is very aristocratic mm-hmm. but it becomes like such a dreamlike thing it becomes like not just this place of purely just like um cis hetero romance and like the wealthiest to exist it becomes a singular thing for someone to work out their <laughs> trauma yeah. and for these polar bears and these fleas <laughs> to emerge in all these like the strange fascinating ways mm-hmm. um it's just interesting to me that it strips those elements while still finding the it strips like the actual context of those things and just finds the actual aesthetic dressing of those things as a big comfort and then it fills it in with its own beliefs and pathos and ethos and yeah. such I don't know. There's still, like, this kind of running feeling of mm, kind of having to be hidden mm. um, to go back to that theme of queerness. Like, I, I mentioned multiple times, um, uh, James Cameron is dating Cary Grant. Yes. Um, <laughs> this is only really told to us via them talking on payphone and mentioning multiple times that, like, he's the only person who calls him Archie. Mm. He's the only person who calls him Archibald. Yeah. Um, nobody else really says his name uh it's kind of also apparent they make jokes all the time about like in, at least in season two that like they have a, a relationship that's omnipresent everything they do is between them and god oh, <laughs> but it's very much a thing of like you know you have to be hidden so yeah. you know there's a, a line at one point mentioning like i forget what the actress is but i've seen you kiss this actress 20 times yeah yeah, I'm fine. I promise. <laughs> There's definitely more of that now that yeah. it's kind of opened up to that, but it was just kind of a throwaway thing in the in the original kind of space. Mm. Um, and I don't know. There's also just kind of this very quiet um, nod to like the preservation of like Judaism in a lot of little moments. Yeah, you um, mentioned that when talking about the, the Santa che- story. Yeah. yeah, there's that and the little like. Is Julian Jewish? Um, he's never said that he's of any denomination he said like my background is like jewish and christian or like yeah. i think he said like non-denominational christian mm. um, <laughs> and like roma um yeah like he's he's kind of been vague about it same thing with him never saying that he's explicitly queer just saying he's yeah. not straight um i think that it comes up mainly because of the period in a weird mm. way um because like the the first story is Goolsby and rue and that mentions the war um just kind of says it as like this thing that's a backdrop and then the second episode opens with the cheap trick thing which is a jewish (laughs) ballad that happens to sound like cheap trick (laughs) said by mandy patinkin um and there's just like these small little nods throughout um so i think there's this awareness of like the period and about Mm -hmm. like the prejudice of it there's also like 
um, the use of the word uh, of like the G slur and the use of like versus Romani. Mm. Um, there's also the fact that the guitarist who is called that is his father, who's a flamenco guitarist. Mm. Um, that's the only like I think uh, cameo of his father at any point. Yeah. Um, there's there's just all these little small things, and I do think part of it is that, and he mentions this a lot whenever he does interviews at any point. Um, both of his parents are artists like his yeah. dad is a really famous flamenco guitarist um and i believe his mother was like a curator of some sort yeah. so he was always around like people like his grandfather he was always kind of at those parties yes. um that he mentions a couple of times feeling very overwhelmed then but also like there are people there who will take the time to like be kind to you mm. um in those spaces so i think it's kind of reflective of that of being like very overstimulated but also finding those like sources of comfort in that overstimulation yeah um I remember what I would talk about. Um, <laughs> the very first song I ever like heard by itself, and it's not really in the show at any point, is the last track on the EP. Yeah. Um, I've got my love to keep me warm. Or I think I just called I've got my love. Yeah. Which is a, is this jazz standard. Um, but it's this beautiful, beautiful cover. That's just it's very simple. It's just mm. this violin kind of like almost anxiously yeah. trilling the whole time. Um, and then horns, obviously, because everything needs horns. Yes, of course. <laughs> but it's, you know, it's this very simple song whenever you listen to it. It's very mm. soft and sweet. And then you hear Julian just belting it. Yeah. And just, like, obviously, every single time I listen to it, I just imagine him, like, out in the cold, like, sitting to a window. <laughs> <laughs> I was just... imagine like... Uh, outside an apartment and there's like yeah. something he loves up there and yeah, he's, exactly. he's with like a chorus of like singing songs behind him <laughs> and he's just throwing him his, uh, throwing his love up there throwing yeah. his little snowball up for hope <laughs> just in hope and it hits the wrong window <laughs> it's just this this beautiful little piece of yearning that's nowhere in the show but I think is very emblematic of a lot of it yeah. um, and there's also um, there's another cover on the uh, the newest DP I mm. forget what it was but it's, it gives off the same sort of feeling um i think a lot of what i love about it and what i kind of go back for is that like it is acknowledging the like kind of sadness or the the kind of deeper aspects of what's going on but it's also allowing you to kind of focus on the things that are enticing and kind of enveloping about it um i looked at my little essay a little bit that i wrote and i titled it a blanket fort of belief (laughs) oh that's phenomenal (laughs) That's such a good title. It's such a good title. Um, and I keep kind of thinking about that, about, like, especially because I was so sad when I heard that this happened, but, like, yeah. Mary's voice tour entering what you think is going to be a very standard concert hall, because that's what it's always been, mm. and then seeing hay bales and a tent and, like, fair stuff and lights. Yeah. Um, and there's even a little bit in season two, he mentions that uh, a gift he gets for um, from his great-grandfather, this, like, really wonderful little gift that he has to hide all the time is a um a model of paris a tin model of paris with lights in it um and there's just like there's always lights there's always this like reminisce focus on like warmth and light and um these like very simple objects it's like holidays are very important as well i think because that's when you see everyone again Mm. um it's the same thing with um uh, city of lights the first line is oh here you are and like you know it mentions you come here once a year um there's this constant referral to going to a holiday that is very overstimulating and very overwhelming but also you know you're safe there you know you can be comforted there you can talk about things that are upsetting you but you'll be okay when you go home um i don't know i think that's what that gives this show gives me more than anything else is that feeling of like going back to some place where you can be very afraid yeah um but you'll be okay uh 
among people who understand that that's kind of what you're there for is to avoid that (laughs) (laughs) or like yeah exactly of just like not having to perform a any sense of strength any sense of oh i'm doing all right just you can actually deal with like those intense enormous feelings of Mm -hmm. fear and sadness and just being destitute that you know have been present in your life that you've had to like squash them down and you can just sit with those for a while and then you can come out knowing that you know still in the orbiting human circus like things will be fine yeah Mm -hmm. And then you hear the orchestral chase after a cricket and sing its little song while yeah, it's and then chasing a, a cricket, flea and then who you comes laugh. Around and does like jazz standards, yeah. There's there's literally not an episode that doesn't make me laugh, well, which makes me very happy. Yeah. At least at They're least all very funny, five yeah. or six times, yeah. Honestly, well, Julian's voice just anytime someone's like, "You're a bad janitor," he's like, "I know." <laughs> he does that a lot. Might just yeah. be like the funniest thing in the show to me. I could listen to that forever. Where he's being. It's also the fun fact of the narrator just being his brain. Yes. But he also, there's a very good little line where he's like, his narrator's getting upset and not knowing a secret. Mm-hmm. And he's just, well, I can't tell you because then you'll know. Yeah. And they'll know. Because <laughs> <laughs> it works for story logic, but not for brain logic. So that's how it has to work because he's in charge of the rules. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Any, any last little things? I've made this feel as much of like, the show as I can. <laughs> <laughs> Um, no, I think uh, I think we've concluded pretty well on yeah. <laughs> all the thoughts on the Orbiting Human Circus. It's just giving yourself the chance to be healthy and strong, to yeah. not escapism, but just a little bit of comfort in between all of that. Yeah, insanity. exactly. Through the power of just you know belief. Yeah. You know, so just you know, if you ever wake up and there's a platypus next to you, make a wish, make a wish make real a wish. fast, <laughs> make a wish real fast. <laughs> You're morally <laughs> obligated to because if you don't make a wish, then he won't exist for anyone else, and exactly. then nobody else will get wish. better. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You have to make the wish. <laughs> Why well, say that? But you know, it's a mirage. It's just, a mirage. Yeah, but just, just make whisper a wish, your yeah. little wish to the, the platypus reading you poetry. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> I weirdly don't want to do an outro for that. I want that to be the outro. <laughs> Here you are, and you're all you wished to be. You're alive, and you're not alone. Not alone in this. So close your eyes, hear the whole world call your name, and you answer, please don't go, please don't go away. All I know is here. songs we all will sing 
mean the same thing and it's not goodbye no it's not go away mom bye dad bye All of your life, you've been holding on to just one thing, and it calls you, please don't go, please don't go away. to be you're alive and you're not alone not alone in this so close your eyes hear the whole world call your name and you answer please don't go Please don't go away. All I know is here and now and right away. Call me here, I will appear like light of day all of the words of the songs we all will sing mean the same thing and it's not goodbye no it's not go away mom Goodbye, Dad. Goodbye. Call my name. Behold the strength of my embrace. All I sing to hear my prayer. Don't go away. All of your life, you've been holding on to just one thing, and it calls you, please don't go. Please don't go away. Ah. Uh...